Wow. You know, it, it just doesn't happen. Um, they, it, it just reminds me of the way the, the church itself works or anything. You know, when you follow a score and you commit yourself to it, cacophony turns to euphony and you harmonize and bring sweet music that touches your soul. And that's certainly what that was. Amen. Last, uh, last Sunday, we looked at chapter 2 through 3, 5, and uh, we saw that with the coming of Jesus Christ, the vision of the Old Testament, what God had revealed, was going to take place in the day of the Lord, in a sense, uh, was anticipated in a, in a way in which when Jesus came, the Messiah announcing the coming of the kingdom of God, the people expected God to uh, totally right what was wrong and, as it were, uh, as the Old Testament prophets had imagined, uh, bring a rather cataclysmic reform. And Jesus ended up dying on a cross. And that didn't seem like the day of the Lord and the coming of the kingdom of God, but in fact, he was raised from the dead and he created the church in pouring out the promised spirit. Peter, in fact, on the day of Pentecost with the spirit poured out upon them, the people thought, what is going on here? What new thing? What incredible thing is happening? And Peter stood up and spoke to them. And in verse 33 of Acts chapter 2, made it a point to say what you see is the power of the Holy Spirit. God has raised him from the dead. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he has poured out, Jesus has poured out what you now see in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in the church. And uh, then he led people to join them in their devotion, commitment, and dedication to Jesus Christ. And they repented and were baptized, and the Holy Spirit came upon them. Well, this is a remarkable thing because, and this is what I want us to appreciate, is that the age to come has dawned in this present evil age, in the midst of this age. Instead of it ending and the new age, the age to come beginning, we have an overlap of the ages. We have the reality of the resurrection and its power in the very presence of God in our lives through the Holy Spirit. And that was something that really forms the framework of what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. And in fact, he made reference to the contrast between this age and the age to come. That is, in a way, we experience the already and the not yet in our personal experience. But then Paul went on to talk about the fact that this age and the age to come is in a battle uh, because he says it's a battle in your life because he says you are you're often hoodwinked, you're mesmerized, you're enticed by the rulers of this age, the wisdom of this age. And he says, uh, 
listen, we operate under the ruler of the age to come, the Messiah, and we operate by a different wisdom and that kind of thing. And so we talked about that in relation to the battle between the flesh and the spirit that talks of, Paul talks about, Romans 8 and Galatians 5. And I don't have the time to recap the entire message, but that is very important because Paul uses terms that show the contrast between this age and the age to come. He calls the natural man or soulish human being, even better, uh, he uses the Greek word psychikos, and that's down at the bottom of what I'm showing you up there on the slide in blue. And characterizing the age to come, he says, you are spiritual people. And he uses another word, pneumaticos, uh, which is of the Spirit. Uh, and this contrast comes, as I explained, from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a, an entire chapter where Paul emphasizes the resurrection. And in fact, in verses 42 through 44, he contrasts uh, our life in Adam and who we are in our natural or soulish life. And it, we get that word soulish from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. In fact, in verse 45 of Acts 15, Paul contrasts Adam, the first Adam, and the last Adam. This is very important. He contrasts the first Adam, all were created in Adam. It says in Genesis 2-7, from the dust God created Adam and breathed into him and he became a living being. And Paul cites that in verse 45 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And that word, living being, is a soulish being. The word psuche or psuchikos is derived from that notion. That's contrasted with the last Adam, Jesus Christ, who in verse 45, Paul describes as life-giving spirit. So it's very important for us to appreciate the fact that when Paul says, you are spiritual, but I could not talk to you as spiritual people. When he says, you are spiritual, just as you, I'm speaking to you, you are spiritual in Christ. When he says that, it's not because you see God in sunsets. It is because the Holy Spirit indwells you. You are a different person in all reality, and for all eternity, because God has indwelt you in his spirit. And that's very important to understand. You still see God in sunsets, but you see God in sunsets because of the Holy Spirit, not because you're imaginative or creative or you just have strong feelings of any kind. Even if you don't see God in sunsets, you are still spiritual people. You are no longer just natural people or soulish people. There's a new power in town. Now, Paul goes on to say something very important to the Corinthians at the beginning of chapter 3. He says, 
I can't talk to you as spiritual people. I'd like to. But I can't talk to you as spiritual people because you've got your head in the world. He didn't say it like that. But in effect, he says, you're fleshly. And he uses a a form of word, sarkikos, that says you're dominated by the flesh. And he uses this expression to describe them as spiritual. He's not going to say they're not spiritual, but he says, in effect, you're acting like you're not spiritual because you've got your head in the things of this world. Remember, we looked at Romans chapter 12, verse 2, as we described the importance of having the mind of Christ and how when the Spirit indwells us, we have a new (laughs) repertoire of truth that's constantly being advocated by the Holy Spirit. It's a mindset of God's truth, God's reality that you and I bear as truth about ourselves in Jesus Christ, a new identity. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says, don't be conformed to this age or this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. When Paul talks about us having the mind of Christ, last week I made very clear he's talking about the presence and activity of the Spirit in our lives. And so, I wish I could talk about this more because I could talk endlessly about it, but Paul is saying, don't be conformed. Don't find your identity in this age. Find your identity in Jesus Christ, which is really appropriate to who you really are in Christ in as much as you have the Holy Spirit. I tried to illustrate this last week. I tried to illustrate this last week because uh, I wanted to emphasize that when I got married, that meant I had a whole new identity. And in having a whole new identity, uh, I found there was a struggle. I sometimes still saw myself as single. Uh, My friends, some of my old buddies, wanted to think of me as single, enjoyed the things that they enjoyed because they were single and I used to be single. And the same plans and the same outlook and the same identity. And that just couldn't be, but that provided a struggle. And in a way, that's the way it is when the Holy Spirit indwells us. Sometimes we think we're still single, but now we are new in Jesus Christ. And we cannot allow what was former and is now false be real because we're trying to be something that we no longer are. Well, what I want us to appreciate, what Paul wants us to appreciate this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is that we are not just new people. We are the new people of God. So let's look at that together. I'm going to read it verse 6 through the end of the chapter. Verse 5, starting with verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? 
servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. That is, what I did and what Apollos did, God assigned to us. We were just acting on his behalf. I planted, verse 6, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In other words, when Jesus is the foundation, he hallows the work. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, but it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, He'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age... Let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world of, or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. The whole thrust of what Paul's talking about at this point, I mean the emphasis is that he is saying you've got to quit being a maverick, a go-it-aloner, and I did it my way. He says, you need to see yourselves as who you really are in Christ. You need to see yourselves as part of something much, much bigger. And this is important because what he's been talking about and what they've been doing is they've been fighting against each other. They've been putting each other down uh, they've been preening and saying, we're more important than you, or we've got the truth and you don't. Imagine, imagine pilgrims. Imagine a colony in a foreign land. This is not hard. We've seen enough movies. You know, you establish an outpost, right? Right? And you survive together. I mean, you push and pull. You work together because you are against 
the natural elements and you may even be against those who are native to that land. Are you with me? But what is more important is that when you are a colony, you are funded, you are given vision, you, you are an outpost of your native land, of your, your home nation. In other words, uh, Columbus, when he sailed the seas, he went in the name of, wasn't it Ferdinand, the king of, of uh, Spain. Was I right on that? And all that they did, they planted the flag of Spain. All, of, all that they were represented the king and the king's government. What Paul is talking to the Corinthians about is about them like a colony representing the good government, the good kingship of the Messiah. Every time Paul uses the word Christ, you should think Messiah. Because when we think Christ, we think it's his last name. It is his title. It represents what he came to do, the fulfillment of all God's purposes and plans as revealed in the Old Testament coming true under his administration. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, God says through Paul that everything is going to be kind of held together and Jesus Christ is to head up this entire enterprise. I mean, if all of earth, so to speak, got on a spaceship, Jesus is going to be the head of that spaceship and the future. And so he is saying to the Corinthians, you are a colony. And you know what? That's pretty powerful. And I'll show you how he does it, but that's pretty powerful because the Corinthians were a colony. They were a colony of the Roman Empire. All of Corinth was destroyed by the Romans back in 146 BC. And it lay in ruins. That didn't mean that a few rats didn't crawl over it or a few people didn't dwell there. But it was destroyed under Julius Caesar in 44. He, if you will, resurrected that city. He rebuilt it. And now it was no longer Greek. I mean, that might have been their heritage. But now even more Romans lived there. And they operated under a Roman constitution, Roman government. It was a Roman city, Roman administration, Roman values. Do you know that a, an, an embassy of the United States in another country on foreign soil is considered state soil of the United States? And what goes on there operates just like it would in the United States. It is hallowed ground. And in a way, we see here that Paul says to the Corinthians, you are the land, the cultivatable land of God. 
And we are all fellow servants cultivating that land. He then goes on to say, you are the building of God. And all the building that goes on, we do. And we are that building. And then he says, you are the temple of God. You need to honor the temple of God because you are the very presence of God. Now, this is huge. This is extremely significant because every time Paul uses the word you, when you hear you, when I hear you, I think of me. But Paul is not using you in the singular. Every use of you in the third chapter is plural. Do you remember the uh, old English, ye? Ye? That's what you should substitute in your thinking for the singular when you see the, the letters Y-O-U. You. It's ye. And back in uh, 1972, I went to Texas. It was my first uh, real trip out of, the, out of California. I was uh, 18. We went on a bus. And we got into Texas. We stopped at a McDonald's. It looked like every other McDonald's the golden arches. I mean, the same, you know, back then, they, now they have customized McDonald's where they can look different. But back then, they all looked the same. The, all, the red and white and yellow tile. And went in up to the counter, and everything looked the same, even the people behind the counter, until she spoke. And she said, y'all. She said, hi, y'all. I'd never... I'd seen it on television. It's really different when someone from McDonald's says, hi, y'all. But that's what you should be thinking here. Y'all, the land of God. Y'all, the building of God. Y'all, the temple of God. That's what Paul's saying. We, the church, are a colony of God's kingdom. We represent the Messiah we are his people. We are colonizing the world for Jesus Christ. We represent him. And the world around us should, even though they think that as a colony we're, you know, we, we speak maybe a little different, we look maybe a little different, we have a little different culture, but we ought to magnify the king. They ought to see our love for one another and say, you know what, that's because of their king. That's because of their Messiah. That's because of their government. That's because of their constitution. They love one another. They, they care for each other. They forgive each other. They look after each other. And I know, I know that in this uh, virtual society, in this virtual connectedness, you know what I mean by virtual? It looks real, but it isn't real. We can sometimes feel pretty smug 
I don't really need to invest in, in, in my people, in my church, because I, I've, I've just got everything, you know? I just, I get on Facebook, I Twitter, you know, I, I've got YouTube, I can see people dancing and uh, making fools of themselves. Um, I've got all these things that comfort and encourage me, but not when you go through great difficulty. That's usually the acid test. In fact, when he says, your works will be tested by fire, well, that was that was common. That usually raged through a city. That's what destroyed the materials of a city. And the, what was stone, what was gold, what was silver, what was solid, that would survive. He says, your works may be burned up if you don't use good quality, a right heart. But you'll survive because you're spiritual You've got lasting quality. That's his point, among others. Let me show you something. This is, uh, <clears throat> this is downtown Corinth. This is a reconstruction of, uh, of Corinth as it was in Paul's time, in the time of of the letter that you hold in your hands. Here's amphitheater. Here's the agora. This big space here, you see that? You can see the word agora, which we don't use, but that refers to the social space at the center of the city and life of the city. That's where all of the political, social, administrative, and mercantile or um, business life went on. Uh, so look at, look, at, look at the land, look at the buildings, and I want you to see the temples. How many temples do you think you would see there? I'm going to show them to you. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, Nine, ten. Ten temples. Looks like the church is in Visalia. Uh, okay, here, look at this large area. This space here, they access these temples, access this temple. This is the temple complex. This is what we call the sanctuary. The same with this temple. That right there isn't a part of the site, that's a, a, a modern museum, so they, uh, but they have to show it on the archaeological plan. But here is, this is the complex, here is the sanctuary or holy site, the shrine itself, and then the same here. So you get an idea, shrine, 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 shrine. How big are these things? Let me show you the space of the agora. That's the whole area. Four acres. Four acres. 
15,300 square meters. That is a big, that's bigger than this whole area and some. So that gives you an idea. This was the imperial temple. That was, it was a temple, it was the, the temple of Octavia, and that's like, like in our terms, that'd be the president and his family's temple or the emperor and his families, and the dynastic uh, line of the emperors, and so they would worship in that huge area. You can see how big that, these spaces are. Now, let me ask you, just think, when Paul says in verse 9, you are God's land, You are his cultivatable land. That's what the meaning of the word is. It's translated field, but it doesn't tell you it's cultivatable. This is cultivatable land. You are God's cultivatable land. You think they they knew about that in, in the time of Paul? Absolutely. And then he says in the same verse, he says, you are God's building. Look at all those buildings. Imagine how glorious they looked. And think of those temples. And then Paul says in verse 16, he says, you, ye, y'all, are God's temple. He says, you know, don't you, don't you, that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Now think about that. He's not talking about literal land, buildings, and holy space. He's talking about the church. He's saying, you are God's outpost. You are the church. You are God colonizing. And what kind of a colony are we? Do we represent our king? When people look at our constitution, our conduct, our culture, do they see Jesus Christ? Do they see us living out the gospel? That is the question. They aren't going to see literal land, literal buildings, and little literal temple. What will they see? What does land represent? It, it represents fruit. It it represents the goods of life, which represent, in a spiritual context, God thriving. You know, in our midst, they see the beauty of what God creates and produces. In fact, Paul says, we're just fellow workers. We don't take numbers or titles or have special uh, status because God is the one who brings the growth and we're all in this together. When he talks about buildings, what, what do buildings represent? Represent shelter. Life goes on there. What about the temple? The temple is the presence of God. These are the things that outsiders should see when they look at the church. Paul wants us to remember, you, ye, each and every one of you. 
our cultivatable land, a part of a bigger property of God. Each one of you is a significant piece of God's building. In fact, we are building on that building in the way we conduct ourselves. And as the temple of God, we are the presence of God. There's a, an account I read, story I read. It was, as I recall, it was set in England. That's where I see stone things being put up. Because uh, there was a construction site. This was an older story, and the, the man <clears throat> approached one of the workers that was uh, working with the stone. He says, what are, you, what are you doing here? What are you building? He says, well, I, I'm just, I, you know, I'm, I'm stacking stone. Okay, he made his way to the next guy. What are you building here? He says, I'm, I'm building a wall. He made his way to the third guy, and they were all doing essentially the same work. He says, what do you, he says, I'm a stonemason, I'm building a cathedral. What a difference it makes when we realize who we are and what our identity in Christ is. And that we're not in this alone, we're to be in it together. It's a community, it's a colony. And we have a witness, we have a testimony, we have a message to get out to the world, but it can't be delivered in isolation or in individuality. It has to be demonstrated in who we are. I think the church in America is suffering in its public relations because people hear the message, but they don't see the message in the way Christians treat each other and the people around them. They hear the words, but they're not seeing it. I will tell you, I believe we are seeing it in our church, in Grace Community, by the way we care for one another, love one another, and love those around us. We're living out the gospel, and we've got to be intentional about it, inspired by it, and given to it. When I was 20, I got married. 20. Seems so young to me now. Too young to get married almost, it seems. But it didn't seem at all young to me then. Shelley was 19. Of all that you think about when you get married, one thing really captured my heart as, a, as I formed my commitment because it didn't, wasn't a snap decision. And I took marriage very seriously, but one great idea was that our marriage is going to be the achievement of my life. And you think about that. In all my life, I hope I'm known for a lot of good things, but the one that's most important to me is the kind of husband I am to my wife, to Shelley, and our marriage. And you know what? With that idea, with that commitment, we have made that real. I know that we look, if you know Shelley and me at all, that just, of course, you're married. You're a family. You have children. And they have some children. I mean, you're like the beginning of, I don't know, some kind of dynasty. 
Of course you should be together. It didn't happen that way. It happened because of constant commitment, constant investment, constantly realizing this property belongs to God. This building belongs to God. This temple is God's. It happened because we continued to cultivate, to build, and to honor Cultivate, build, and honor. Cultivate, build, and honor. And it's real because it captured our hearts. And at the heart of it was the truth of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, love your husbands as the church loves and serves Christ. And it's become real. And it will be our legacy. And it's not just ours. We have children. And children's children. I want us to appreciate that the reality of what God wants to do in Jesus Christ and his church is something we make happen as we cultivate his land, as his land, build his buildings, as his building, and honor his temple, as his temple. We'll talk about that some more next week. I'm going to pray for us. We stand. And as you're standing, I just want to remind you, maybe this morning you don't know Jesus Christ. You don't realize the reality of what God is doing. And I know that in some ways what you think about church or what you hear about church, or you gotta, you got to see it as God is doing it in all of its authenticity, and that's what we're seeking to do here as his people. The people of the Messiah living out the gospel in a way that brings honor to its king. I hope you'll be a part of that, and if God has been speaking to your heart and you want to pray with me or others of us who will be up here after the service, after I pray and say amen, we invite you to come. Maybe God's been speaking to your heart in some special way. If you'd like to pray with us, we invite you to come. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, the work of your Spirit, your presence, and your power in our lives. Capture our hearts, Lord, with your big picture that we're building not just one stone on top of another or a wall, but a cathedral one that you had in your heart, in your mind, before the foundation of the world to reach the world for Christ. We praise you in Jesus' matchless name. And all of God's people said, God bless you.